Who watched the solar eclipse on Monday? Yeah, a lot of you. You got the glasses and you did it, huh? I was one of the 4.4 million that uh, watched it on the NASA uh, uh, app. And it was great watching it there, too, because I was working on some other stuff, and you can kind of see it and watch the the totality come. Um, What was amazing about the eclipse was uh, how how it captured the attention, really, of of most of the nation, and, and the world, for that matter, but especially the nation. Uh, this sort of, it was sort of an odd kind of unity uh, for our country for, uh, odd, yes, uh, uh, for just a short time. Uh, it brought together people of all different ages. Uh, uh, the younger generation particularly identified with this uh, powerful thing that was happening, but people of all ages, uh, people of all political persuasions did not matter in this, did they? Although some tried to make it that matter, but um, there was nothing about that. It was this sort of rather unusual, what seems unnatural, rare, and unique natural event. It was only 90 minutes from coast to coast. You know that it went that fast? And the longest it was ever in one location for, of totality was two minutes, and I think that was here in, in Carbondale. And the reactions to it were really kind of over the top. This is when you really use the word awe, as in some, awesome, there was great awe that was uh, brought, there was, there was great emotion about it. Some of you saw our own uh, favorite weatherman here in, in uh, Chicago, Tom Skilling, who was brought to tears, brought to tears as he talked about this on national TV, and people not making fun of him, but identifying with the emotion that he felt, and he even called it a life-changing, for some people it was a life-changing event. I heard this from somebody, it was worth every minute of the 15-hour traffic jam getting home from Carbondale. That was my oldest son, Grady, and his fiancée, Francis. But he said it was worth it. Some reactions were spiritual. This is God's amazing handiwork. Only God can do this. Still others saw it as a sign from God, referencing quotes from the prophets, Amos and Joel, about the sun turning dark and signaling a time of repentance. Was this a sign from God? Or is it just a witness to his creative power and majesty? As we read in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Big questions are raised in something like this about the existence of God. It's funny, on some of the Twitter feeds, somebody would say something about God and somebody would say, why do you bring religion into this? Well, I can tell you why we do. (laughs) Questions about the existence of God. Questions about the power of God. Questions about the involvement of God in and over nature. Questions about how does God send messages to his people if in fact that's what he was doing. These are big questions. And I'm not going to answer any of them this morning. But I'm going to let them sit there in the category of questions that we may ask about God when we consider a question that God asks of us. The biggest question that is asked in the text that just Chris just read for us. The big question was Jesus to the disciples that day and Jesus to us today is, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? In a sense, Jesus is saying, who's with me? Everything at this point in the gospel story hangs on the nature and the identity of Jesus. Time is getting short and he will head from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south soon where he will suffer and he will die. He has only so much more time to build any of these disciples and to make sure that they are with him. Do they really get it? Jesus is wondering, who is with me? And so he begins with the question, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? 
And the disciples say, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But then Jesus comes with the big question, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now, I didn't realize the importance of location where Jesus is when he asked this question until Megan and I had the privilege of visiting there in Israel this summer. The location is the town of Caesarea Philippi. Not Caesarea. Caesarea was a great Roman city built on the Mediterranean coast by Herod, where Paul gets sent to at the end of Acts. And not Philippi, which is the city, the first city in Europe where Paul planted his first church. With a woman pastor, I might add, but we'll get to that later. Not Caesarea, not Philippi, but Caesarea Philippi. It's about 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee. I got a little map in your bulletin for those who are uh, map friendly. This was a city that had already been there, but it was built, the new city was built in honor of Caesar, hence Caesarea, and was built by his son Philip, as in I, Philip Pi, so Caesarea Philippi. It was on the site of an ancient city, but that, then it was known as Panias, P-A-N-E-A-S, and now it's pronounced Banias, and so that part of Israel now is called Banias, not Caesarea Philippi. It's named Panias after the Greek god Pan, or Pan, P-A-N. Pan in the Greek pantheon of mythological gods and all this was the god of mountain wilds, the god of groves, the god of streams, the god of springs and, and wooded glens. He is also known as a rather mischievous, troublemaking companion of nymphs. Remember mythology? Yeah. So he was a bit of a rascal, this Pan. In fact, you know the word panic? It's a tribute to him. The nymphs would panic when he'd come near. <laughs> In your bulletin, I put some photos, since we're not using the screens today because we're doing outdoor worship and we don't use screens outside. <laughs> but I have a couple photos of, the, of a temple that was built in Caesarea Philippi to honor him. It was built over a gushing stream, one of the three headwaters of the Jordan River, and to this day, you can see the fresh, cool water come out from under this mountain. The Jordan River downstream becomes very muddy, but at this point, it's cool and it's clear and it's clean water. And so this temple was built there built to honor this goofy god, Pan. Are you getting this now? This is where Jesus took them. Jesus took them to this highly pagan setting. Jesus had them stand in the, in the presence of a false god and a bunch of confused worshipers. And it's right there that Jesus brings his disciples to and asks the big question. Okay, in the face of this crazy temple here, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Everything hangs on the nature and identity of Jesus. Time is getting short. Do they really get it? Who is with me? And then comes the answer from Peter. Peter looks and says, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It's what we call the great declaration. Messiah is a Hebrew word. That's the same as Christ, which is a Greek word. Messiah Christ. Put an equal sign between them. Same thing, two different languages. The closest meaning in English is the anointed one, anointed with oil. It's what they did in those days to priests and kings, one chosen by God, those consecrated the service of God as priests and as kings. But toward the end of the Old Testament period, the, the, uh, the word Messiah assumed a special meaning. The Messiah became seen as the ideal king, the one empowered by God to rescue his people and to establish a righteous eternal kingdom. More and more, Messiah got attached to that. 
They long for the Messiah, the long for Messiah, the Savior, the King, the one that we sing about at Advent and Christmas is what the hope was pinned on. Who do you say that I am? And Peter nails it. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Peter nails it. He's spot on. He gets it. And he doesn't get it on his own. Jesus said, God revealed this to you. But he knows it, so he knows. And Jesus knows. And we know that it's the right answer to the big question. And then there's this promise. Jesus says, my church starts right here. He says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus is using a play on words here. Peter, the word Peter is actually petros in in Greek, and it means like a rock or a stone. Then he says, and you on this rock, and the word he uses there is petra, which is bedrock. On this bedrock, on this solid rock, I will build my church. Jesus only uses the word church three times in Matthew, and two of them are in another verse later. On this rock, I will build my church based on this great declaration. And in a sense, he's saying, Peter, I'm starting with you. You're kind of like the first member in a sense. It starts here with this truth, and the church is built. And the reality of this truth that Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God drawing near to us. Jesus is Lord and Savior. Jesus is calling us to himself. Jesus is calling us into his body, the church. And finally, he says these words, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Hades means a place of death. Not necessarily hell, as we might picture it, but the place of death. Jesus said the gates of Hades will not overcome it, overcome the church. You know, when we visited there this this summer in Caesarea Philippi, and we were standing in front of that those rocks that you see in the one picture, and then they, what they think the temple looked like before. It's quite possible that right behind him, in front of one of those temple buildings, were some gates. The gates of Hades speaks of death. Jesus is saying the power of death will not overcome the church. So Jesus might have been saying, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Maybe even on this rock, instead of the stupid temple upon, on this rock I'll build my church. And these stupid gates of the power of death will not prevail against it. And Jesus makes this bold declaration that death will not overcome us. It did not overcome him. He overcame death, and death now will not overcome us, and the church will grow. And we will be able to live a life of purpose and meaning and direction. We are given the gift of life that is truly meant to be, as it's really truly meant to be lived. What then is our response to that truth? This invitation into life with Jesus Christ. This answer to the question. What what will be our answer to the question of Jesus coming before you? Who do other people say that I am? And consider that. But then who do you say that I am? I'd like to encourage you to think of your response right here, right now, this morning. Perhaps you've never actually answered that question of Jesus. You're maybe familiar with church. You've come and you, you generally, generally believe in God. But this decision to say, I am going to claim Christ as Savior and Lord. I am ready to receive his gift of grace and life. This might be the day to answer the big question of who do you say that Christ is? 
It might be your day to say, I've always believed about him, but today is the day to say, I receive his gift of grace and life. This might be your day to turn to him. Some of you are listening to that. You're going, I've done that. I've given my life to Christ. But maybe the question to you is, who do you say that I am today? And what does it mean about the way you're living and so your decision today may be one to say, you know, I believe, but I haven't really been following and trying to arrange my life around what God wants for me. So today might be a day of deciding to let him be Lord. I'm going to invite the uh, worship band to come up because now it really is time for the offering. <laughs> and um, as the offering plates come forward and the band sings you can sing along but i really want you to ponder these questions god spoke into peter's heart before he gave that answer so god works in our hearts and you might sense that he's stirring in your heart today as well and if you've never made this decision to answer that question this might be the day to say i'm going to turn to jesus now and claim him as my messiah my savior my lord and receive his gift Or you may want to work on this decision of what it might look like to follow him from now on. You believe in him, you've confessed him as Lord, but is it time to follow him as Lord? So Pastor Diane and I are going to be just right up here in front during the offering time. And if you want to come up and just speak to one of us and have us pray with you briefly, we want to invite you to do that. Jesus at the center of it all. Jesus, you're the center. Everything revolves around you. Jesus, you. I love about the way Jesus preaches is that he takes advantage of where he is and what he's doing and how he's teaching. And so you heard Scott talk about that, that he was in uh, Caesarea Philippi and he was doing some amazing teaching. And as I thought about that passage, I was like, we're going to be outside, right? And Jesus preaches and he uses what's around him. And so I had a hose set up and it was amazing and it was going to be exciting. And um, I was like, scrap it. And Kayla's like, I think you can do it inside. So, okay, so here we go. Um, But the passage that I was drawn to is not in the book of Matthew. And I thought, I don't know, am I going off script here? Uh, But I went to the book of John and uh, chapter 7 it's opening uh, in, they're, they're at this great celebration, and it's all about water. The celebra- they're celebrating water and how God provides the water. And then this priest does this really dramatic thing where he, put, you know, he fills it up with water, and he's got this golden picture. pitcher. Imagine this is golden. And he pours it into this funnel, and it's amazing, and it goes right into the ground. And the people are worshiping, worshiping, that the God of the universe, the great creator, provides water from the sky. I guess it's our fault, 
right? I wanted to talk about water from God. Okay, so, so the water that the priest is, is pouring is this beautiful moment, and then guess who interrupts? Jesus, of course he does. And he says this, he says, um, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from them. By this, he meant the spirit. Jesus was so good at those moments. Um, And I was thinking about when priests or pastors get up front, you do not interrupt, right? But I'm a youth pastor, so I'm used to being interrupted, right? Um, So as I was thinking about it, it actually made me think a lot about how we are engaging with Jesus. I think once we've accepted Christ, like Pastor Scott was saying, I think sometimes we think we'll just run and we'll get a little glass of water because we're thirsty, right? And we take a drink and we're like, oh, that, was, that felt good. I, I feel better. But we don't keep letting God fill us up. And then sometimes if we're really spiritual, we, we, we think, oh, I'll go get a full cup and then I'll run. And this is when Kayla was going to run and she was going to spill some water and she was going to try to fill up a few cups. But you see, when you run with just one cup of water, you only have a little bit to share. And this is where Kayla's going to come up and she's gonna, she is going to help me because she's going to bring her cup. Because if you... Th- hear those scriptures again, Jesus says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me. So if I'm thirsty and I come, and then I say, Kayla, come and drink under the water that Christ is giving to me, she can get filled right underneath the water that I am receiving as well. And so I'm no longer running back and forth. And the great part is, and then Kayla can say, come, and drink. It was going to be amazing outside. You all were going to flood the place. And you were going to drink of the living water. Thank you, Kayla. You were going to drink of the living water that only Christ can give. So often we think we have to be the ones that run out and go back and forth. And the problem is, as you're coming back, what's wrong with your glass? It's empty. And so when you come back, you got to start all over again. But if you stand under the flow and ask other friends to come, and it happened this week. You invited your friends to be a part of something that fills you up. Danae and Amy challenged us a couple years ago. Get under the flow. This is how I experienced Christ. Getting rid of my junk. Getting rid of my excess so that I can be present to God. And for all of us, it's different. I don't know how you get under the flow. I don't know how you feel most fully alive in Christ, but you do. And if you haven't, then maybe you need to experience what what Scott was talking about this morning, that you need to start a relationship with Christ. For me, I love being with people, and I love building connection and going deep with people. And so Tuesday mornings and Wednesday nights, I'm like, come on, come. Because we're going to go deep. We're going to experience one another. We're going to experience what God has for us together. But I, I invite people, as I stand under the flow, 
I no longer am trying to run and pour little bits and come back with an empty cup. It's exhausting. You been there? The guilt will get you. But Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, is saying, come, stand under the flow. Let's pray. God, we thank you that this morning you sent your water to do a mighty work in our hearts and in our minds. And God, this morning you brought us inside for a reason. And if it's even at this analogy makes more sense. I ask God that you would challenge the hearts this morning, that you would shift and change us internally. And that we would come under your flow and that we would invite people to the things that bring us fully alive in you. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.